Welcome to podcast Going Hokey with George Bresnahan. Uh, isn't that amazing in A Course in Miracles that Jesus explaining that the reason he does not take away our fears, that he leaves that for us to um, to wrestle with ourselves and, and free ourselves of fear is because the law of cause and effect is the most fundamental law there is, says the Course in Miracles. Jesus doesn't want to take away the power of our thoughts. That's why he does not intervene to take away our fear. We have to do it ourselves. The, on page 30, 31, it says that there are no idle thoughts. What is an idle engine? It's an engine where the car isn't going anywhere. And there are no thoughts that don't go anywhere. All thoughts go somewhere and, and manifest something. We didn't grow up with this. I didn't. And it's, it's time now for, for me to more fully incorporate this, this reality of that our thoughts uh, create things. Our thoughts are powerful. So where are we going? You know, what are we going to do with our thoughts? It's a, a book called Creating Money that says, once you realize that you can have what you want, uh, you need to decide what you really do want. Yeah. One, thought is, one type of thought is more powerful than another. Wayne Dyer says, uh, high and fast energy. He doesn't call it. He doesn't like to call it good and bad. Um, he likes to call it high and fast, and low and slow energy. So thoughts are the highest form of energy, says Wayne Dyer, and high fast energy is is more powerful than low slow energy. And high fast energy is ah thoughts of love, yeah. A Course in Miracles says, uh, when someone does something wrong, what they call error, which A Course in Miracles says doesn't actually exist, but when someone does something wrong to us, the only appropriate response, and they're speaking to me on this one, is, is a desire to heal the offender, so to speak. Not get revenge, uh, not put in his place, not hurt them, but to help them heal. It's the only appropriate uh, response. And so those thoughts are, are uh, more powerful than others. It's on this, in the secret, on the secret, the video says that uh, positive thoughts are, are 200 times more powerful than negative thoughts. Well, that's that's reassuring. That's reassuring. How how do we, as Americans, heal our country? Um, I would like to see our nation become a little more conservative in, in sexual morality. Uh, someone visited our, us yesterday and and said that that she and her husband are getting a divorce, and it hit hard. The marriage wasn't wasn't solid to to, to begin with. We find out 
but it's it's just sad to see things fall apart and and the husband to take on a lover right before their eyes. Uh, and I don't claim to know completely on on sexual morale, morality, just what is right. But, but um, hello, this is going hokey with George Bresnahan. Let's talk about Uncle Ellery's funeral, the miracle of getting there. I usually fly domestic, and so I forgot that you have to get there three hours early for an international flight, and this was from Leon, Mexico, to Dallas, Fort Worth. So I got there an hour before, and he just said no. And I said, why don't you just walk me up there? I mean, they're still there. They haven't left. He said, no, that's not how we do it in aviation. So um, there was a, another flight that day. I was going to be able to make it to Ellery's funeral, but not to the, the wake that same evening. The um, flight was five hours later, and there was only one seat left. And it was an $800 upgrade. Now, normally, I would get quite upset in a situation like that. But it was $800 that my brother gave me by by up and dying. So I, there was money, so I didn't get upset about it. And in those five hours sitting around the airport, I had three conversations that were just terrific. First, I met a young woman who was flying to Cuba to go back to medical school. And she and I shared the same ex the, the experience of the same medical school back here. And so we could talk about references. And, and it was just beautiful to hear her uh, share what Cuba was like. And, and it's just great. And then I met a woman uh, from the upper middle class of, of uh, Leon society. Uh, coming back from Houston, and and she wasn't uh, uh, uppity. She was very friendly, and it was marvelous to experience that. And then I met an American man, uh, a counselor, a psychologist, and and that was a terrific conversation. So it's funny how how what appears to be bad turns out to be good. Now. We get on the plane, American Airlines, young pilot, very confident. And he says, folks, I'm sorry, but we're missing some part underneath and we need to remove a few thousand pounds from this plane before we leave. And so 20 of you have to get off and you can stay at the local hotel and fly out tomorrow. It took them 20 minutes just to get used to the idea and then people started getting off. And then the pilot said, okay, well, we need 20 more to get off. So time is ticking. And that didn't take as long as the first 20 people. And then he said, well, now we need to get their luggage off the plane. So that took some more time. And then he said, now we need to refuel for all the time we've been sitting here with the engine on. So my... Flight, my connecting flight in Dallas-Fort Worth was uh, two hours 
after I was scheduled to land. But we took an hour and a half in Leon, just sitting there uh, making the plane lighter. So we, we took off, and, I, and I'm sitting there in first class, and eventually I asked the uh, flight attendant uh, if it would be likely that I would make it to my connecting flight, and she said, no, probably not, which, of course, would um, do away with the purpose of, of being in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport if I can't make that flight and make it to Ellery's funeral. Uh, so we landed, and I had 30 minutes uh, to get across the Dallas-Fort Worth airport to the connecting flight. I ran. I, my attitude was, let's just make this happen. Let's uh, let's see if we can do this. So I ran down this long, long, empty hallway and made a left turn and into this giant room with these machines that I'd never seen before that, that take a photograph of your passport. There was no line, and there was a woman who works there standing nearby and showed me what to do. It was over in a second. And you should see the photograph of myself uh, with this look on my face of, uh, let's give this a valiant try to get across this airport and this noble effort. And I went to immigration. There was no line, and he was kind and asked no questions, and off I went. Then through that security check to see that we don't have anything on us. Fortunately, Dallas-Fort Worth is very organized on that. There was a line, but it was quick. And then customs, and he, the officer said, don't you have a, a suitcase? I said, no, nope, just this pack. Boom, I was off. I pop out into the lobby, the, into the uh, gate area, and two women did not know how to help me who worked there. But then there was this man from Uganda or Kenya, and he was ready to help. And he drove one of those carts that are flat in the back to hold um, luggage. And he quickly understood my situation, and off we went. He, he was not interested in the pesos in my wallet. And off we went uh, at full speed uh, in between uh, uh, pedestrians in the long uh, gateway of the airport. Uh, we went a long way, and he saved incredible time. And I got there to the gate for the connecting flight to Fargo, North Dakota, with three minutes to spare. And so a full flight, and off we go. Uncle Ellery was uh, 90 years old when he died, lived a marvelous life, uh, married his high school sweetheart after he came back from college, and married into her family that that owned land. And uh, the Red River Valley of North Dakota has the has black soil. It's the richest soil around. So they don't grow corn like they do next door in Minnesota. They grow soybeans, which are harder to grow uh, because they have the best soil in the world. It, it was a, a lake during the last ice age. So now it's a lake bed and marvelous. And Uncle Ellery had a big farm uh, with the uh, Sinner brothers. 
and a big family and a beautiful family. And he he succumbed at, at uh, 90 years of age. And I was representing the, my siblings, the children of his twin brother, who died many years ago. Um, my cousins, uh, the Tingleys, uh, received me uh, that, e- that evening in uh, cold February, North Dakota. And the next morning off we went to Castleton, 20 miles away, uh, west of Fargo. And this is where I spent my first 10 years of life. I've only been back, let's see, in 81, in 90, in 08, for Uncle Dick's funeral, Dad's oldest brother, and then again here in in 2018. So I was going to be the fourth time to be back in, in 50 years. Wow. So... You come into Castleton, and it's, it's only grown just a little on the uh, south edge of town, which is smart because the winds come from the from the North Pole and just across Canada. I swear there isn't even a single tree to. There is, in fact, there's a nice uh, belt of of forest across the swath across the across Canada, but it just feels like uh, nothing is there between the North Pole and and the north side of Castleton, North Dakota, uh, in the winter. So 10, 20 houses more on the south side. When they chose the south side to have the rest of the town block those winds from them, for them. And, uh, well, uh, Bresnahan Funeral is, is uh, in its own way a beautiful thing because we see each other every 10 years. But now there are, of course, no more, no more uncles and aunts. Uh, still alive uh, after that funeral I walked a couple of, well maybe a hundred 150 yards back to the alley where I grew up it was all so close we would get mass in that church every Sunday um, mom insisted on it mom uh, at another at another wake, uh, probably 15 years earlier, um, Aunt Helen, married to Uncle Dick, stood up and said that the best thing that ever happened to the Bresnahans was Jane O'Connor. And uh, Mark Singley, a cousin of mine, uh, confirmed that, may, well, she may have said that, but either way, it was true. That uh, mom, mom was a marvelous uh, the Bresnahan family. Uh, so, and one time back in 66, probably, mom stepped out to go to mass and took a few steps in the snow and found herself stuck uh, knee deep in snow. She realized immediately she was not going to mass that she was going to go back into that house and she cried more of a a yell of despair and years later she told us why she said what occurred to her was that she was going to go back in that house and spend another week 
without getting out of the house. And that thought was not uh, pleasant for her. She was looking forward to Mass, among other things, for just the variety and the interaction uh, with different people. Uh, it was a mar we, we grew up in the house that my dad and, and his siblings grew up in. Dad bought the house from Grandma when, when he got married. Uh, he got married to Jane O'Connor because Aunt Pauline had a baby at St. John's Hospital in Fargo and came back to Castleton and said, George, have I found the girl for you? So she took Dad to St. John's Hospital and introduced her to that nurse over there, Jane O'Connor, from further north in North Dakota called St. Thomas. So Dad visited now and then, and he would. Mom said that he would kind of follow her around the hospital. And she found that um, corny, you know. Um, but it worked, and uh, she graduated from nursing school in probably 56. And she and her friend, uh, June, went off to New Mexico to be nurses. But it was with the understanding that somewhere, sometime, Dad would uh, show up and, and propose. And so a year later he did, and she said yes. And, and uh, she wrote to her 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 dad, Archie O'Connor, would would it be better to get married uh, before the harvest or after the harvest? And he wrote back uh, before, because at uh, 22, 23 years old, she was considered an old maid in uh, North Dakota culture in the 50s. So he wanted her married off. So it was June 1st, 1957. The Bresnahans came up to St. Thomas. And um, the O'Connors showed up too. And I'd say that respectfully to Mother. Uh, they were 12 kids. Now, little Jimmy died at three years old, but they were 11. And this wedding, June 1st, 2000, uh, 1957, was one of the three moments that the 11 kids were together. Um, Bud, the oldest, went off to World War II uh, and so forth. They were really spread out in age, and Mom was part of the, uh, the youngest kids. So, um, about that wedding, reception uh, over at uh, the, the yard next to the O'Connor house at the edge of town. They were actually farmers. Um, moms had, mom had said earlier, no alcohol at my wedding reception. But she had several older brothers, and they, they like to drink. The O'Connors will tell you they like to drink. And they wheeled out a cart with liquor on it. And the priest got so drunk that when he went walking back home, he fell into the ditch. And the men at the wedding reception had to go and pull him out. Part of O'Connor lore. So back in Castleton, uh, in 2018, 
after the Ellery's funeral and the reception next door in the new hall that was there in 2008 for Dick's funeral as well, but that was built on top of the old parish hall, which was under the ground. It was a basement where uh, the Bresnahans would gather. Huh? The Bresnahans gathered on Sundays after Mass. They took over that basement. Uh, I guess the parish didn't mind. There were four families, big, you know, five, six, seven kids. Uh, Ellery, of course, and Jean. George and Jane, that was, and I was the oldest of that group. Pauline and Don Tingley, and Dick and Helen and their their clan. And the older cousins would ask me if I remembered uh, the uh, the early days, but I did not. In fact, they showed us a a Super Eight movie, and there I was running around, I think in a tricycle, if that's possible, if that memory is right. But there, of course, I remember the uh, the older years. You know, it's funny how our memory starts at uh, four years of age. But uh, I think zero three three is actually uh, the most influential. Huh? So, 2018, after the reception, you know, reconnecting with cousins, meeting their kids and grown kids. Uh, I walked over to the old house, and it was only 150 yards away. And so I got to the uh, the alley, and there's the the rhubarb plant, a stub of a rhubarb plant that sits there, sits through, sits out the the winter. And you know, when it comes to rhubarb, and you're living in California. The only possibility of a, a North Dakota rhubarb pie is, I guess, DHL or, or uh, Federal Express. I, I thought about that sometimes. A rhubarb with its sour uh, touch is uh, amazing. And, you know, I think we do need to eat uh, seasonally and, and locally and, and experience those those flavors of when something is harvested ripe. Right. Um, so I'm walking down this alley, and on the left, that's where I put my finger in the sprocket of a bicycle, bicycle chain going around, and and uh, that's why this fingernail is so strange, because I, for some reason, put my finger in the sprocket of a bicycle we had turned over. That was behind that corner house. And then a little farther up, here in the backyard of one family, back in 60, March of 66, probably, maybe 67, I f was walking down that alley and I found my Charlie Brown doll. My Charlie Brown doll had spent the winter under the snow. Now, Poor Charlie Brown would say, you know, uh, go figure, you know, that's, that's after, you know, all those tough experiences with Lucy, all, all they needed was to spend the North Dakota winter under the snow. I just picked him up and brought him home in the, in the 
March, April uh, sunshine of a beautiful spring coming on. The snow melted. Um, in 2018, that, that day, the snow was two to three feet high. The sky was blue. There was no wind. And the silence was incredible. The silence was total. Sure, the, the snow was an amazing acoustic, but still there were no kids digging in the snow, uh, playing outside. Uh, that's the problem with video games. Um, I walked down and stopped behind our house, which we sold, you know, 50 years ago. They had built on and an addition in the back. So I think one big tree wasn't there anymore. Also, Dad's apple tree wasn't there. When Dad was 12 years old, he planted an apple tree. He put a seed in the ground. And up came a tree that reached about 20 feet high. One year of my childhood, it gave a bunch of apples, green apples. One year, it gave one apple. And after that, it didn't, didn't give any apples. And we left in 68 when I was 10 years old. Well, that tree wasn't there either. And neither was the shed at the property's boundary where, from which we would, uh, we had home plate there and, and played kickball and baseball or softball. Marvelous. All right. Thank you.